This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Okay, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. How are you? I'm right where I was last time we con- connected via this means. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's going yeah. great. It's a new dawn it's a busy, here. Busy 2021 so far. That's a good news. Uh, our CEO put out this morning, uh, Admiral Daly, Gave us an update on some of the things happening with the Jackson Taylor Conference Center. So construction is continuing. You know, that's been impacted by COVID a little bit. You know, when you do a big construction project, there's three major variables. There's cost, there's schedule, and there's quality, right? And so Admiral Daly has been adamant that we that the two that we stick with are cost and quality. So we're getting those. The schedule has, has slid a little bit to the right. Um, and some of that was uh, due to, you know, supply chain issues. He mentioned this morning that the the wood flooring, the company's all ready to uh, make it and install it, but there's no wood to be had to turn into the the nice flooring. Uh, but some of the other things are starting to come in. The uh, the big glass entrance, which has to be done um, by uh, you know some codes uh, for DoD standards and that sort of thing. And um, so that's you know was designed in New York. Uh, built in, the, I think, the UK, and has now been shipped back and is getting ready to be installed. And this thing called the Kugel Ball, which is like a globe, the, the world globe that spins on a little thin film of water, that was installed, I think, last week or the week before. So it's uh, it's moving along. And our guest today uh, has has played a big role in the uh, Jack C. Taylor Center because of the close relationship he's had with the, the uh, Taylor family. So I'd like to introduce uh, back on the podcast uh, again is uh, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld, retired ninth vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and a member of our board of directors. Admiral Winnefeld, great to have you on the show. Well, it's really great to be back with you. And uh, I'll tell you, thanks for giving me the credit on the Jack Taylor Conference Center, but I won't take one scintilla of credit. It really belongs to uh, several people. One, you know, your CEO, uh, Pete Daly, did such a wonderful job of, of assembling this project and, and advancing it. And of course, we're all going to be very grateful to the Taylor family for their generosity on this thing. The namesake, uh, the founder of Enterprise Rent-A-Car, uh, Jack Taylor, flew Hellcats off of USS Enterprise in World War II. And as maybe your readers know, most of his flying was off of USS Essex. But he did some flying off of Enterprise. And, and when it came time to name his company, he thought Enterprise sounded a lot cooler than Essex. So uh, history is made. And it's a, it's a great company and a great family, and we're privileged to have them as supporters. It's funny how how little the difference between success and failure is with those kinds of things. You know, I don't <laughs> think Essex Rental Car would have been a big hit. So, Admiral, you just did an article for Proceedings called Operation Desert Storm 30 Years Later, My View from the Joint Staff. It's hard to believe it's been 30 years. I know we all remember where we were when. 
So let's talk about the article here. You you go into great detail on where you were and how you were on the inside uh, of the joint planning process. Yeah, it was it was really an interesting time uh, leaving the fleet after three consecutive operational tours, flying fighter airplanes and, and having a blast uh, and showing up on the joint staff, uh, plunged into the, the sort of basement of the Pentagon, uh, working on the uh, Central Command uh, area of the Joint Operations Directorate, which is the sort of nerve center where all the deployment orders and such are written uh, to move forces around the planet. It's a lot different now than it was back then. But uh, watching the fall of the Soviet Union uh, from my little cubby there at the same time, uh, Saddam Hussein was was rattling the swords uh, against Kuwait and watching that uh, and sort of being prepared for that over the course of what, about six months before he actually made his move was was uh, and then, you know, the rest is history. Uh, pretty interesting time to be uh, out there. Well, we'll remind the audience that the chronology, he invaded Kuwait, August time frame. Um, and and we instituted Desert Shield to prevent him from coming into Saudi. Uh, I remember particularly uh, the Ike was extended for that because um, I was about to join VF 143. Um, I was on my way to 143 as a Super JO in the RAG, and they got extended for that. Um, and um, the rest was like a waiting game, right? Bush forty one yeah. gave him the ultimatum: "Hey, get out, or we're gonna we're gonna attack." And he played chicken. And then on January seventeenth, the uh, ops began. Yeah, it was the first of two times that Saddam Hussein made the big mistake of allowing the U.S. military uh, six months to build up its forces before the war started. And of course, that first uh, six months was called Desert Shield. And, uh, you know, we went through all the naming processes, the, you know, how you're supposed to do this kind of thing. And, and General Powell, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the, at the time, waved that all away and said, no, we're going to name the second half Desert Storm. Uh, because his friend uh, Stormin Norman Schwarzkopf was the commander of U.S. Central Command at the time and was in charge of that operation. So um, it was quite a waiting game. And I spent most of that uh, waiting game uh, buried in the bowels of the Pentagon and and the tri- uh, crisis action team, the CAT team, um, producing briefs, writing uh, orders. It sounds a lot more glamorous than it was. It was very tiring because we were shifting, you know, shifts every four or five days. You'd flip 12 hours, which is not very kind to the body after six months. But uh, but we got the job done. It was an interesting time. What were some of the big challenges in that August, September time frame as we started to really move forces towards the Persian Gulf, towards the Middle East, some of that at, at that level, that size of deployment hadn't happened before. Uh, so what were some of those things that, that stick out in your mind of like the, oh my God moments of, you know, we weren't ready or we were ready, but we had never done. And so therefore it was difficult to, you know, jump through hoops. Well, you know, the, the deployment itself occurred in a, in a number of phases. You know, the first was the, the very first night that Saddam Hussein invaded. It's like, what is what do we have to get there right away in order to contain this thing? And we had been working on this for a couple of weeks in terms of the small bits of it, you know, getting sending some airplanes, you know, tankers and, and such to the UAE, which had, who had requested our support, but actually going, OK, this really happened. What are the priorities? What, what, what do we need to get there first? You know, the Air Force wanted to send a squadron of F-15s, uh, you know, the 82nd Airborne, you know, the whole. So, so sorting through that the first night was a very hectic time. And then 
from there, the, the big, massive, mighty logistics and uh, planning machine of the Pentagon took over and with uh, what we call a TIPFID, time phase force deployment order, which anybody who's worked on a joint staff is well familiar with that term, and, and uh, getting uh, a diplomatic support for basing uh, those forces in the region was, was very important. It uh, took a few days, obviously. The, the Saudis were very nervous. Uh, about two things. They were st- they were nervous about Saddam Hussein continuing south, and but they were also nervous about having U.S. troops on their soil. So working working through all of that diplomatically, along with some of the other nations in the Gulf. Uh, but we got through that and just started moving the great big military machine uh, over there. And in a way, we were blessed that the the Cold War was winding down. We had all of this conventional uh, ground firepower, armored units, and and what was designed to to win uh, World War III in Europe was pretty much available for that operation. It, it was uh, almost dovetailed perfect timing incentives, sending units back to the United States. Some of them got sent straight to the Gulf. Uh, do not pass go. So as you mentioned, you were fresh from a department head tour in a Tomcat squadron, I think VF-1. And uh, this is your first immersion into this thing called jointness. And you go through some of the really details about using you know, old-fashioned overhead projectors and that sort of thing, and some of the politics of on-the-fly changing a brief and some of the audibles that you made that you may have been comfortable with, you know, in a Tomcat squadron, but uh, maybe you got cross-threaded in unintended ways when you were in the, the, the joint arena. So what were some of the things that you learned during that phase? Well, you know, um, showing up out of a out of a, out of of an operational squadron and, and onto the joint staff, having to learn that system uh, you know, was something that I had to work very hard at for a couple of weeks, just deep immersion, read everything I can and try to understand the, the funky old computer network that they had. How do you fill out this standard form 136 when you're writing a package? And, and, and you know, how do you get the three page package down to a one page package so that a three star will actually read it? You know, all those kinds of things are things you learn as a staff officer. They never had to worry about as a fighter pilot. So that was the sort of first immersion. And then, uh, you know, the, the opportunity to use judgment uh, was just something that comes natural to a naval officer, right? And and um, uh, we, I, I discovered that the cultural differences between the services where, you know, the Army and the Air Force are, are professional staff organizations. They're incredibly efficiently structured, disciplined, procedurally constrained processes where a Navy guy coming in there just goes, well, you know, let's just make this happen. And, and, and there, was, there were times when that was difficult, but there were times when that was a huge benefit because it, you know, it, just, it, it just enabled me to get things done a lot more quickly you know, than some of my Army and Air Force counterparts, to be quite honest with you. They're great people, but they, they grew up in this environment. They all went to Fort Leavenworth, to staff, co- staff schools. You know, we we kind of turned up our nose at that kind of thing uh, in the Navy. So, so that was interesting, and it culminated in, a, in an anecdote that I tell in the in the article about giving a brief on Operation Sharp Edge, which was the non-combatant evacuation of Liberia, and you know, we're, you know the the director of the of the of intelligence on the Joint Staff, Admiral, or then Captain McConnell, who ended up being the CIA director, and I are are to, are to give this brief, and he's going to give the intel situation, and I'm going to give the update on the operation of how we're going to get these people out, and it's in the tank with all the chiefs, and Colin Powell walks up to us sticks his finger in our chest and says, you've got five minutes, no more. And of course, then Captain McConnell proceeds to take the first four minutes and I'm exercising judgment, right? 
ditching slides left and right. And the brief went just fine. You know, Colin Powell was very happy with it, but I got um, a little chewing uh, on a little bit later on for ditching the slides that the three-star had personally approved. Hey, naval officers are paid to, to, to you know, use their judgment. And I honestly, at that time, and, I, and I've had this through my entire career, almost a callous attitude. Obviously, you have to have respect for authority and process and procedure, but, but you know, um, you can always go do something else, right? And at that point in my life, I could always go back and be an airline pilot or, or some other thing that I wanted to do. I, was, I didn't have a lot of anxiety about acting that way at the time. That, that's a good good way to go at it. So there's an interesting, speaking of uh, Colin Powell, there's one little vignette you have where he uh, is asking you a question about the B-1 bomber. Um, yeah. what, what was that one all about? Well, this is one of those things where, you know, I'd rather be lucky than good, right? Uh, and and we're, Colin Powell's actually having meetings in his office rather than the tank with, with some senior folks kind of hashing through, what, what's this going to be like? How are we going to handle this? And we have to understand that that you know the Tomahawk missile, for example, back then did not have some of the GPS capabilities and so on that it had today. It had what we called TURCOM and DSMAC, right? Uh, uh, digital scene matching area correlation and terrain, you know, map. And and the terrain is so flat there, we had no missions that were planned or planable uh, quickly. And and so it's like, how are we going to get ordnance on target in Kuwait and Iraq? Well, so they're searching for ways, and, and they came up with, well, B-1 can carry a lot of stuff, right? And and uh, just by chance, two weeks before this meeting, I had attended a brief, sort of a professional development brief where the Air Force was describing how they were going to – they were working through the R&D of getting the B-1 to be able to carry conventional munitions, not just nuclear weapons. And so now I get ushered into uh, this meeting in Colin Powell's office. He goes, so how long is it going to take you to get a, a B-1 – uh, able to load conventional weapons to participate in this thing. And I, and I said, well, sir, the Air Force isn't there yet. Uh, they're still developing this capability. And he looks at me with this Southern you know, infantry man and says, yeah, I'm just a poor, That's you know, answer the question, Lieutenant Commander, uh, how long will this take? And I said, sir, it'll take two weeks. Uh, and you know, the Air Force Chief of Staff didn't have the answer to this question. And he was sitting at the table. Uh, so it was, it was uh, uh, you know, a good lesson on Carefully answer the question completely <laughs> to a senior officer. Speaking of uh, Air Force capabilities, sir, and, and also their, you know, their their culture, one of the things that you mentioned later on in the article is a, a big change that came out of Desert Storm was the sort of mechanization of uh, air operations, which came to be known as the air tasking order. And during Desert Storm, you know, there's Navy stories were that you know they had to fly the S3 into into Saudi Arabia pick up the ATO, printed copy, get it back out to the carriers, distri distribute it to the six carriers that were there, and then the you know, squadrons would get it. You know, and now all of that happens through the magic of uh, you know, high-speed internet, even out, even out at sea. But uh, talk a little bit about how that, um, that ATO process and the, the, the culture of that you know, Air Force-centric process changed the Navy during the, the remainder of your career. And then what, what was your, per your perception of it you know, later in your in your career in, in the joint jobs that you had? Sure. This is something that was, was really fascinating about that conflict. In fact, my dad wrote a book about it that I think was published by the Naval Institute Press about joint joint air power. And it was it was fascinating for me to watch because in my time as a as a department head, you know, you're a strike planner and that sort of thing, you know, I became a virtuoso in how the Navy would do strike operations. And the strike operations we were planning for were these one-off 
one day, go whack some Iranian, you know, base. Uh, and and your approach to that you know single operation is completely different from the way you would approach a campaign, and what the Air Force had been training for and and doctrinally preparing for its entire you know existence in the last previous ten or twenty years was this long drawn out air campaign in Europe, which uh, requires this this industrial approach to to generating sorties and. And targeting, and they they really, uh, I really give the Air Force credit for coming up with a fantastic uh, cycle, the ATO cycle that we're familiar with of of planning those things. But the Navy had no idea what this was about. It hadn't even couldn't even spell ATO if you if you asked us to. And so because this was going to be more of a European war than a one-off, you know, drop a bunch of bombs on Iran, uh, we had to conform to that process. Uh, and, you know, the big Air Force was the big animal in the room. And so we not only had to learn how an ATO works and how to how to to make inputs to the ATO and the like, as you point out, we didn't even know how to get it out to the ship and parse it so that we could write a flight schedule for the ship. Uh, and, and you know, some really great uh, naval officers worked their way through that problem and it ended up uh, being OK. Uh, but, of course, the Navy has 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 absorbed that doctrine and and, and is now a, you know, a major player in joint air operations. Same thing happened with the Marine Corps. You know, the Marine Corps was very jealous and, and remains very jealous of controlling its own air power because it's it's an extension of its own firepower. It's, a, a, you know, airborne artillery, essentially. And and there were some fierce fights between uh, the Marine Corps and, and the Air Force over who would be writing what into the ATO and whether the Marines would retain control of their own sorties. And there was an uneasy truce that was declared. It worked out in the end. Um, but that was that was testy. Uh, and then the, the other thing that was interesting in, in, in the air power doctrine side was was the Air Force very strong belief in this industrial campaign world of of taking on the enemy uh, at its source. You know, the supply depots, the command and controls, you know, the sort of the deep fight, whereas the army was going, hey, wait a minute, I got guys on the ground in combat. You need to prioritize close air support. And that battle was fought out very, very hard. Um, and uh, but it all came together in the end. And of course, it was a, a very well run campaign. But there were a lot of bumps and warts along the way getting that air power thing sorted out. Well, th- those growing pains that you talk about, um, you know, things like having an LNO, you know, a, a rep that would go to Riyadh, you know, a bad deal. So you weren't sending talent. So as a result, you'd look at the ATO like, why are we doing like in the rear with the gear sorties here? How come we're not doing? the, uh, you know, front edge cap missions. The other thing we learned besides the inability to download the ATO aboard, you know, in Civic was that we didn't have the PID capability that the Eagle had. And and so as a result, they're going, hey, you guys can't separate, you know, weed from chaff here. So therefore, we're going to make you second and third order defense here. Um, and so all the MiG kills, except for our good friends, Mongo and, and Mark Fox, went to Eagle drivers, right? So we had to play catch up with that too, not to mention precision strike capability and stealth. So when we're all back stateside watching the boys in Baghdad and explosions are going off and we see AAA going up and we're like, geez, I wonder if my buds are on this, this, you know, event. We had no idea there's this thing called the F-117 until the BDA was being briefed the next day and people were talking about this stealth fighter. It was just amazing. And so we realized as you know, as you said, we're really good at being organic. In fact, verify if this is true for me, Admiral. I heard that the Midway Battle Group did 
the first strike of the war organically, and they were rolling in on on Basra, you know, without being ATO fragged. And 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 so they're like simo run on some targets with guys who were ATO fragged, and they're coming up fleet common. They're like, what are you doing here? And they're like, hey, there's a war on. And they're like, yeah. we have this thing called the ATO. And 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 so is I don't know if that's true or not, but I love that story I because it was a wake up call. There's some six drivers that have some pretty hairy stories uh, from that time. But, you know, to your point about adjustment, let's zoom forward about 15 years. And I'll tell you a little anecdote there. When I, Now I'm uh, uh, the uh, carrier strike group commander for USS Theodore Roosevelt. And it's, it's the second Iraq war. It's, it's 2005, 2006, when, when our, our troops on the ground are really suffering. They're really getting hit hard. And we show up. And one of the benefits of being able to fly as a flag officer is, is I, I fly in and, and check in with my JTAC uh, on an ATO sortie. And he says, uh, are you rover equipped? And I said, uh, I don't know. What's rover? Uh, <laughs> the Air Force had it. And we didn't, of course. And of course, rover is a really neat technology that allows you to send your FLIR picture from your cockpit down to a laptop that the, your joint air controller is, is using on the ground. And I said, I, I don't know what it is, but obviously I want it. So th- this was the last cruise of the Tomcat. And, and we were able to get nav air out to the, the theater. And we used a uh, Pioneer UAV uh, uh, radio card. And we hardwired a line from that card into the uh, F-14 backseat uh, display. And within five weeks, we had Rover. And it was better rover than anybody else had in the theater because the line losses between that little playing pack card, which were in the AIM-9 fairing, and the, the Rio's uh, thing were like only two feet. So we had no line losses, and we had this – we were blasting our, our FLIR picture down to any JTAC that wanted to see it. But again, this is the agility of naval aviation. Uh, they wouldn't let us do, do it to the F-18s, by the way, because that was more of sort of a industrial, very closely controlled maintenance thing. Whereas, hey, last cruise of the Topcat, you can drill a hole here. No problem. <laughs> Uh, um, but it was it was same thing over again where we show up in theater and discover there's a capability there that we didn't have that we needed. So remind me, you you were skipper of Enterprise post 9/11, right? When you guys got turned around. Yep. To, uh, so you know, let's remind the audience that it wasn't just when you were on TR, you were part of that war early on, like first, right? That air wing was the first yep. on on the scene. You guys were headed home and you got turned around post 9/11 and stayed there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because I get a lot of misplaced credit for turning that ship around. It, it, there's there's a lot of folklore there. It's like I threw my white scarf over my shoulder and turned, you know, ordered Enterprise hard left and let's go up to Pakistan. When in fact, you know, anybody who's been involved in that process knows that there's a, a discussion that happens with the strike group commander, the fleet commander. Like what I'm really proud of there was that we actually got from that point to being on station ready to fight the very next morning. And the reason that was hard, we had to make 25 knots good over the ground in order to get there. So the aircraft maintainers are saying, hey, we've got all these aircraft buttoned up. We need to run elevators. And you can only run elevators at 20 knots. And the navigators are telling me, hey, we got to do 25. And they all look at you as the captain to solve their problem for them. And when actually the problem is, the solution is very simple. I just said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get all four aircraft elevators ready to run at the same time. We're going to go 30 knots. But when it's time to run those elevators, we'll slow down to 20, but, you know, down go the elevators, up come the elevators, and then we'll speed back up to 30 knots, and we'll average 25 knots over the course of the night. And we were there the very next morning. Uh, simple solution. But, you know, in, in a time of, of stress, 
the disparate you know, factions will come to you as the leader and try to get you to solve their problem for them. And we'll remind the audience that Enterprise remains the fastest aircraft carrier in history. That's so. right. And, and now I, I used to joke with my son who always wanted to know how fast Enterprise could go. I said, I can't tell you until you get a security clearance. But now that Enterprise is decommissioned, I can tell you the fastest I ever had that ship. And remember, it was an old ship. It was 40 years old when I had her. Uh, it was 37 and a half knots. <laughs> Think about that. 30, and, and when it was brand new, it could probably go a lot faster, right? <laughs> and so you had, and again, for the uninitiated listener, Enterprise had six reactors. Eight. Eight reactors. Eight. N- Nimitz class has two. Um, the other thing I remember, because we did a fleet CQ on Enterprise when I was CAG Ops, the bow is more narrow than a Nimitz class. So you can't get two Tomcats to spread their wings on Cat 1 and 2, um, which, you know, that was... Uh, uh, interesting to me. But, uh, you know, I think people forget what a cool ship that was. Certainly you don't forget, um, yeah. but amazing capability. Let's talk about some of the other lessons learned from Desert Storm um, that jump out at, at me. So we talked about stealth. Obviously, that was a game changer in terms of an integrated air defense system because, you know, post 9-11, we think about the Taliban and other asymmetric threats. Iraq had a real military, right? Never mind how good they were, but they had MiG-29s, they had tanks, they had the Republican Guard, and they had an integrated air defense. So we did the IADS rollback with, like you said, we did TLAM, we do uh, the first wave is, is stealth, and then we do the regular airplanes, and we had tornadoes and intruders that were still going down low, and they paid the price. You know, a few of our friends wound up being POWs. Other guys got shot down. Um, so that that's something that we walked into this war, sort of, as you say, myopic naval thinking, you know, strike you says do this. Um, and we learned kind of the uh, the hard way, some of those lessons that, that informed our, both the program of record and our, our tactics going forward. You know, and I think you're really raising an important point. And, and that is, we sometimes have a tendency to, to know there's a problem but to be in denial about that problem. And I, I think that the community before that war kind of, you know, and, and it's in the back recesses of its mind knew that, you know, flying in at low altitude against its sophisticated integrated air defense system was not going to be um, uh, necessarily a, a survivable thing, but we did it anyway, right? We, 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 we did incremental improvements to try to make that concept work uh, rather than rethinking the entire concept. And maybe if we talk about China a little bit later on, we can we can get into into where we're doing the same thing now. But you can look at, at operating on the surface of the ocean right now. And I and I love my surface brethren like you wouldn't believe. But I think we have that little denial on the, that deep recesses of our mind about how hazardous it really is out there when somebody has both anti-ship ballistic missiles coming at you at the same time. You've got a, a sea skimming supersonic weaving missile that's got its own electronic countermeasures coming at you, and maybe there's four or five of them coming at you at the same time. Are we in a little bit of denial there about whether we can survive that? I would argue yes. But back to your lessons learned on the uh, on Desert Storm, I think one of the things that we, we really discovered in that um, was the value of precision-guided weapons, right? I mean, where we, you know, the old cliche where we were talking about how many sorties per target versus how many targets per sortie. And I, I tell a, a little story in the article about showing uh, General Kelly, a, a career army tank officer, uh, this this chain of videos that had been put together from F-111 crews and A-6 crews about dropping precision-guided weapons on tanking, on tanks. They called it tank plinking at the time. And watching that this ruddy-faced Irish guy 
turn bright pale uh, as he watched those tanks blowing up. And he realized then and there that that warfare had changed considerably uh, uh, from what he was used to as a younger officer. Sir, at the uh, at the strategic level, the start of this thing, right, there was some warning. As you said, there were a couple of months where we knew something's going on and Saddam has got, you know, an intent towards Kuwait. Right. And there was some strategic signaling on Iraq's part, but also on the U.S. part. And so at the at the start of your article, you mentioned the comments that uh, the U.S. ambassador to Iraq, April Glassbee, mentioned, um, you know, in a meeting with Saddam before his tanks rolled into Kuwait. Talk about that a little bit about what what we should learn from that. Sure. The um, you know, all along during this six month period, when we in the central command branch of Jod were rattling the you know raising the alarm like hey this guy sounds like he's serious he's he's talking about burning israel he's talking about taking you know kuwait as his 19th uh, uh province and we were told you know iran iraq supported us in the iran iraq war and the tanker wars and all that you know they're, they're our friend we can't do any planning against them so so you know things happen and and it starts to come to a head and our ambassador uh, ambassador glassby had actually been on station in iraq for a couple of years and had never had uh, presented her credentials, had never been allowed to even meet with Saddam Hussein. And now all of a sudden on the on the brink of this war, there's an audience. And I think uh, Saddam was actually, you know, testing to see, hey, uh, you know, is this okay that I'm going to do this? Are you going to object? And and April Glaspie uh, and her famous exchange basically said, we don't ha- uh, have any interest in your inter-Arab quarrels. And Saddam took that as a as a green light to to do what he wanted to do. And as we found out when he was pulled out of his hole in Iraq and interviewed and interrogated, he said, you know, one of the first things he said, why didn't you tell me not to do this? I wouldn't have done it. Uh, And and when you think about that one, uh, that one exchange and the catastrophic results that it had cascaded down over the last 30 years, because it's not just that war, it's all of the things that have happened, you know, the the uh, Kobar Towers bombing in, in Saudi Arabia, leading to Osama bin Laden, leading to 911, leading to a, a war in Afghanistan and a war in Iraq, and so much loss of life and so much economic impact. It just goes to show how much leverage one small miscommunication can have strategically that can reverberate down through the ages. So let, let's double click on that, um, because there's some specific military activities that you know, we all three were involved in post-Desert Storm. So in the article, you say the decision by President George H.W. Bush to end the war when our objective of rejecting Iraqi forces from Kuwait and restoring that nation's sovereignty was accomplished, rather than continuing to overthrow, uh, on to overthrow Saddam Hussein, was one of the wisest in our nation's history. This decision, influenced and supported by thoughtful leaders like Secretary of State James Baker, Chairman Powell, strongly informed my later views on the use of national power. So before we segue to the China piece in this conversation, let's talk about the post-Desert Storm part. And and to your point about Kobar Towers and the, the sort of radicalization of Osama bin Laden, he said that our staying in the region after Desert Storm is what fired him up. So we now have a permanent foothold at PSAB and Bahrain. We create Fifth Fleet. We're doing Escon Village. We have Operation Southern Watch, which I did a couple of cruises worth, so forth and so on. We're good at getting into things, not so good about getting out. So 
some thoughts about that. Imagine how much worse it even would have been if we had continued on to Baghdad in, in that first uh, Gulf War. And I think it was a very disciplined approach on the part of, of President uh, George H.W. Bush and, and his senior leaders to say, look, when we went to the Congress, when we went to the UN uh, to say we're going to reverse this aggression, uh, we had a very uh, strict set of objectives in mind to do that and not necessarily to force a regime change uh, to punish the, the, you know, the, the crook who, who did this. And they stuck with that when at the time, all, all the momentum and all, all of the uh, com ground combat momentum and all of the uh, other you know, uh, strategic political momentum was in favor of pushing on. Let's finish this job. Uh, and the president said, no, that was not what we came here to do. We came here to reverse this aggression, and that's that's where we go. And I think uh, um, there there that was one of the best examples in American history of res of restraint in the use of force, uh, and um, something something we may have missed uh, since then. Well, we also had a national victory parade. It was a nice yeah. tidy dismount. You know, the we last did. time we've had uh, a parade. I watched it. I was there. It was uh, pretty pretty amazing. Uh, and, and and there was hubris. There was mission creep. And and uh, but you know the, the other thing though is that is that in finishing the job there was a humanitarian aspect of that and, and we were worried about the 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 swamp Arabs the Shia uh, Arabs in the south and we were worried about the Kurds in the north and that that was of course the birth of 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 some of the humanitarian efforts and the no fly zone in the north and the south that we had uh, with Saddam so that he couldn't couldn't uh, continue his mischief. Let's segue to, to China, because you mentioned that a little bit uh, ago, sir, and we've got all, uh, a preview of coming attraction in the March issue of Proceedings, which is always our international focus. We've got an article written by a friend of mine who's one of the smartest people I know uh, on on China, where China has been, where they're going, their national objectives. His name is Mike Dom, writes for Proceedings a lot, who was a naval attache in, in Beijing a few years ago. Uh, but his piece, and we asked him to write it. Uh, write it for us was about what China learned from Desert Storm, right? What did China learn from watching the United States, our technology, our tactics, our capabilities? Um, and, and so you, as uh, when you were at the tail end of your career uh, as the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I remember working China issues out at PACOM with Ever Willard uh, and briefing you a couple of times via VTC. So what are some of the things that you think China learned from Desert Storm and, and what do we need to do you know, to sort of get ahead of that now? Well, I think um, both China and Russia were terrified by what they saw in Desert Storm. Uh, it, this was, even though Russia knew uh, that, um, you know, their military is a little different from, from Iraq's, it basically was the same equipment, the same training, the kind of thing. And we just rolled over, uh, particularly on the ground, you know, the tank versus tank duels, it wasn't even close. And that was a real wake-up call. The use of precision-guided weapons was a real wake-up call. The industrial approach to warfare, where you are so efficient with ATO processes and the like, uh, it was it literally terrified them. And I know I'm you want to talk about China, but I'm using Russia as the, as as the example here. As the J5 on the Joint Staff, I, I wanted to do a, a a meeting with my counterpart in Russia. Well, it turns out there is no J5 in Russia, uh, but they they sent a guy over. Uh, who was uh, because they had an objective for this meeting, and that was to learn as much as as possible. So they sent their their three star equivalent of, of me uh, was the the man in charge of building uh, brigade combat teams 
of logistics, you know, the, the whole art. And while I wanted to talk strategy as a J5 guy, all he wanted to ask me was, how do you build a brigade combat team? Uh, because he had seen, you know, this incredibly efficient ground force that we had. Uh, and so that just speaks to the fact that while we were preoccupied for 20 years with, um, you know, counterinsurgency warfare, these guys were, were working as hard as they could to uh, counter our military advantages, uh, both Russia and China, and in particular China, because they had the economic power to do so. And so they have they have closed uh, existing conventional gaps while opening asymmetric gaps uh, because they studied us very closely. So they, they've closed, you know, uh, they're trying to close stealth. They're trying to close precision guided weapons. They're, but they're also opening these gaps in counter satellite warfare and cyber because they know that we depend so much on those uh, particular capabilities for the way we like to fight. And I really am worried that, that, that what, what we used to enjoy as uh, technical advantages, as doctrinal advantages uh, uh, to uh, account for the tyranny of distance in both of those fights and the tyranny of initiative, because we aren't going to start those fights, they are. Uh, that advantage has eroded. And, and now they're, they're relatively on parity with us, not quite, but on parity with us technically. Uh, and they have all the advantages of, of, of initiative, distance, and a number of other advantages, particularly in Europe. So I do worry that, that we are uh, approaching a really difficult ability, uh, whether we can deter these two countries or not, in particular China. And um, the, uh, the, the, the challenge for us is that we, as an American military, are very good at what I call the first and second horizons of innovation. The first horizon being making little incremental improvements to your systems that make them a little bit better. I mean, our industrial base is just so good at that. You know, hey, we'll make the radar look a little longer. We'll make the, the missile go a little further and have a little better seeker head. We're just really good at that. And the second horizon of, of innovation is these little step functions and capability. Things like hypersonic weapons or, or uh, stealth capability, what have you but still applied to the same warfighting concept. And our warfighting concept for China is power projection to essentially overmatch and defeat the entire Chinese military. They're not gonna let that happen. They're not gonna let it happen technically, but they're also not gonna give us the time to do it. Back to Saddam Hussein, they're not gonna give us six months to build up all of our stuff before the big fight starts. And I worry that when we imagine this fight, uh, as a military, we, we imagine ourselves in the middle of this fight. How do we win the Battle of Britain over Taiwan Strait? Uh, there's going to be no Battle of Britain over the Taiwan Strait because the Chinese aren't going to let that happen. They're going to move so fast that that we could potentially be irrelevant. And, and you know, Bill, you know all about this from the two articles that Michael Morell and I wrote recently about how quickly they could move and what we need to do in order to prevent that from happening. And what it means is getting to the third horizon of innovation which is rethinking the entire concept. And we can do that. And it's ironic that in doing, if we do that right, we might actually find that we could deter China and spend less money doing so than we are now with all the stuff we're doing at the first and second horizons of innovation, spending a lot of money. So it's an interesting problem. And the question will be, um, does the leadership in the Pentagon, and I mean civilian and military leadership, have the imagination and the ability to see this happening to where they really challenge themselves um, intellectually, uh, because it's so easy to ask for more stuff 
and better stuff. But it's really hard to rethink a problem. And I think that's the real challenge that lies before Secretary Austin after he's confirmed um, and, and our military leadership in the Pentagon today. So you, you, bring up, you bring up Secretary Austin. Any thoughts about his requirement for a waiver? How, how you liking that, Nam? I, you know, General Austin Lloyd's a good friend of mine. He's a very smart, um, very collegial, very capable, uh, very deliberate. Um, and uh, so in terms of, of whether he's going to do well as a secretary, you know, we got to give him a chance to, to get in there, dig around, see what he sees and push the department in the direction he wants to go. By the way, he's got three big challenges in front of him as a secretary. The first one is is getting through these social and political problems that are swirling both around and in some cases inside the department. Things like um, how are we handling COVID? Things like uh, getting rid of extremism in the ranks if there is any there. Things like unwanted sexual contact. All those things that they just nip and, and, and chew away at a secretary's time, uh, but he's going to have to deal with that. The second one is is the current and existing operational things we've got going on. What do you do in Afghanistan? What do you do in Iraq and Syria? How do you handle some of these uh, existing on your plate now problems, like a potential problem with Iran uh, and the like? And then, the, but the third and the hardest one is what we just talked about. How do you reshape the department for um, great power competition in an imaginative way, rather than just saying, "Give me more stuff," because this, because what I have isn't enough right now. We've got to do better than that. So, uh, in terms of of him getting a waiver, uh, you know, I I don't I, personally, it's not a problem for me. I think the challenge is if you're going to pick up a, a military, a retired four star to be your Secretary of Defense, you have to make sure you pick the right one. That this person gets the fact that it's a political position, gets the fact that he's going to have to tell people he knows who are friends of his, his things they don't want to hear, uh, who who has an ability to work with Congress, like somebody who understands how a politician thinks. And and you so you can't pick the wrong person for that or you're going to pay the price. But I think uh, I think Jim Mattis was a, was a good choice there. Uh, and I think Lloyd will turn out to be a good choice here. The real challenge, I think, and I'm really going to be listening uh, for for where uh, General Austin comes down is rethinking these difficult problems we've got in front of us. Is he going to do that? And and can he get the department to do that? Can he get the services to do that? It's going to be hard. But if you gather together some really bright people who are willing to challenge all the assumptions and give them a task, how do we want to rethink this war with China? Not just from a Navy perspective, not just from a military perspective, but from a whole of government perspective. And how do those pieces fit together? Then I think, uh, you know, you, you could end up coming up with some pretty good stuff that would serve the CNO well. Now, we did this with Deep Blue, I think, back when I was a EA. You know, Jim Stavros was running Deep Blue. But it ended up getting sunsetted because it was, it, you know, it had served its its purpose. Now, there's an article out there uh, that I read recently, and I can't remember who published it, so I apologize if uh, if it wasn't prestigious. I think it might have been just a real clear defense piece by a guy named Steve Forenzi called The Death of Critical Thinking in the Military. I would commend that to, to you and your readers. Uh, as as uh, somebody who has really thought about this problem with some decent ideas on how to fix it. But but I, I think the, the CNO needs to find uh, a mix of young and old who are uh, challenge the assumption thinkers uh, who can help him work his way through this. Probably my favorite military quote of all time, it gets more favorite every year, is Liddell Hart's, uh, the, the only thing harder than getting a new idea into the military mind is getting an old idea out. Well, we need people who are willing to do that. And, and courageous leaders who are willing to listen 
uh, to that. And, and I think the other thing is that a, a publication like Proceedings plays an absolutely vital role in that process. Uh, it's the it, it's the only service, uh, you know, the Marine Corps and the Navy, the only two services that that have this amazing forum that Proceedings uh, serves. And so uh, I I really appreciate the fact that you continue to challenge your authorship, uh, the 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 field of of people out there who contribute with thinking this way because it's more valuable I think than you might even appreciate uh, when senior leaders read something really provocative. I think it really matters, and they may not agree with it. But they might go, hey, the force is strong in this one. You know, I want to know what this this lieutenant or this lieutenant colonel, I want to know more about what they have to say. That's We need more of that. And you guys are doing a great job with it. We'll uh, remind the audience that you have walked that walk as um, a mid, as a lieutenant, always used the forum to its intended effect. So on behalf of the membership, I'd like to thank you for that willingness as well, sir. Well, it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, over the years. And I'll, I'll never forget looking back when my dad and his brother, I think, wrote an article. Um, I think there was a prize winning essay article about ASW. This is way back in the day, back in the Cold War, about anti-submarine warfare against the Russians and how we were messing that up. I went, wow, that, what a piece of work. Uh, how interesting it was to be able to write something like that. And then I ran across Fred Rainbow, of course, writing my first uh, piece for proceedings. You know what an icon uh, he was, and and a, a wonderful mentor and teacher to me. Um, and this this sort of flame of of writing, um, which many of your authors share, uh, you know, of having an idea, of of thinking about how to you know express it, uh, all the way down to how to spell, <laughs> much less <laughs> before spell check existed. It's just been a lot of fun, and Proceedings has been tremendously supportive of, of my efforts in that regard, including fantastic editing, by the way, uh, which I very much appreciate, appreciate every time I submit something. Uh, thanks very much, sir. Appreciate the plug there. also wanted to mention that, uh, and I know you've been briefed on this, the American Sea Power Project, which we kicked off in the January issue of Proceedings. Uh, we just finished the uh, February issue. So in January, uh, we had uh, Jerry Ron Collado and Paul Giara write the opening chapter of that. And uh, the February issues by Professor Jim Holmes, uh, the Naval War College professor. Mm-hmm. And uh, coming up in uh, the April issue, we've got uh, Dr. Nick Lambert, who's an economist. Uh, and this is a, a project where we are sort of rebaselining what does it mean to be a maritime nation? And why does a maritime nation need a a Navy need a, 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 a naval force, if you will, sea services plus maritime uh, administration, maritime power. Uh, and we want that to not just be a series of lectures by, by big minds, but also a conversation, a back and forth, as Pete says, a duplex, not a simplex conversation. So, um, well, you know, for our listeners, look for that. If you haven't read the first uh, chapter of the American Sea Power Project, it's in the January issue. Proceedings up on the front page of our of our website right now. You know, something else I want to compliment you for is the uh, and I, I, you, you've heard me say this before and in, in, uh, in other meetings is, is uh, the, the courageous thing you all did in having a fiction essay contest. And I have I've long believed that some of the best ideas and the most imaginative ideas about the future come from fiction and, and countless examples. I mean, whether it's written fiction or whether it's television fiction or movie fiction, a lot of what we do today was imagined by creative writers. So I would urge you to continue that process, and um, I can't wait to read some some of the future um, fiction pieces that you all uh, put together. 
Thanks for mentioning that. That's where we had 122 entries in that contest, which was you know phenomenal, and we had some amazing people like Ward Carroll uh, help help judge this. Oh, you know, no, phenomenal! What a noted, list! Noted, noted fiction authors, uh, <laughs> and we had you know to your point about how fiction um, helps you uh, you know sort of think about what the future might be like. Um, we we had August Cole as one of the uh, one of the judges of that as well, and Cole, you know August is the guy that has coined the term fic int, fiction intelligence, right? Sort of imagining what the future might be, not imagining the car, but imagining you know perhaps the traffic jam that comes with the car, that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, good on you for doing that. I I think it was a great idea. Whoever had it. Well, thanks very much, sir. Well, that that wraps up uh, another issue of the Proceedings Podcast. Our guest today has been uh, former Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. Always great to have you with us, sir. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Keep up the great work. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you again soon.